Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. It's a pleasure to baptize children. It is the privilege of privileges to preach God's Word. So I invite you Stand with me as we read our passage. We're going to read again a portion of last week's passage and continue on from it. It's impossible to separate them. Matthew 19, 16 through 30. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God All things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that your word will will not be mere words as it comes from me this morning, but that it will be attended by power and conviction by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As I uh, near the end of the trail of my, uh, my life as a primary preacher in a church, and, and that day is coming up as I go further into my 60s, I find myself wishing that I could communicate to you, to the congregation, Not what God is saying alone, though that's obviously a part of preaching. But my personal confidence, conviction, knowledge, whatever you want to call it, that what God says is true. The truth of what God says. Because if there is one thing that that grows in me and weighs on me is I am nearing, you know, the days of old age. It's that the Bible is true and that everything God says in it is true. Everything. It is true. 
And how do you communicate? You can say what it says. You can say so with what it says with conviction. You can convey it with conviction. But how do you bring home to people that the word of God is true? Only by the Holy Spirit. This passage is true. I want you to know it's true. This passage is so true. It is true. I say it as a man who's experienced it and seen it. It is true. Now the question that's before Jesus, the question that the young man poses is the question of questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to obtain eternal life? Imagine not obtaining eternal life. Imagine being shut out of eternal life. Imagine the doors of heaven being closed on you. And that's the reality for some who are here this morning. You will go to doom. You will leave this life and you may think that the doors of heaven will be open, but Jesus is very clear that not everyone who thinks that will find itself. For some of you, the, the end is already written. By God's grace, I don't know who you are. I'm not the judge of this. I'm called to speak the truth and to challenge you so that the word of God might find entry into your lives. But imagine, those of you who, are, who know the glory of God and the love of God in this life, imagine going through life without knowing the God who made us. Imagine never being able to pray and know that there's a father who's listening with love. Think of a, a future of darkness with heaven within sight because Isaiah makes it clear that heaven's in sight of, heaven, of hell. And the, Lazarus can be seen by the rich man in hell. Imagine looking there and saying, oh, what a fool I was. But that's asking you to imagine the future and imaginations of the future are hard. What I do know is that, that in this life, there are such rewards for knowing God, such joys. To know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to be able to pray, to know that he has a purpose for you and that your name is precious to him, that you are, as the Bible says, the apple of his eye. That the one who created the universe and set the stars in their courses is more concerned about you than the sun. That the, the God who made all things beautiful, the Alps and the Rockies and the amber waves or the golden waves of the shocks, the, the shocks of corn at the end of the season, this God has beauty for you, knows you, loves you, has a plan for you. Jesus is speaking here about how you obtain this knowledge, how you receive the gift of eternal life. Not to receive this gift, to be shut out from this gift is the worst possible fate in heaven. But right now, let me say, it's the worst possible way to live on earth. There is no richer and better way to live than to know that God loves you. To know that the God of the universe who placed the stars in their orbit is designing every moment of your life and caring for you and has appointed an end for you that is tinged, not tinged, suffused with his mercy and his care. That this God is your father.
And this knowledge is a joy for those who have it, to be without it, not to obtain eternal life. What a terrible thing. And so we have this passage that speaks about how we gain eternal life. And it's a passage which speaks to us of, well, the danger of one particular temptation to your eternal future and mine. That's really what it is. It's a message in which Jesus, a passage in which Jesus speaks of the danger of money. The danger posed by money. And I'm not talking about the love of money. I'm talking about money. The danger posed to your life by your money. It's a passage which speaks about the tremendous power of God in salvation, which is equally a passage which says that we are not powerful. That the power is in God. God has tremendous power. And it's a passage which speaks about the goodness of having God as our Father. Now, having said those things, the danger of money, the tremendous power of God that's necessary for our salvation, and the great goodness of God as a Father, let's turn to our passage. It's a passage that's famous. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Then immediately goes on and says, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He's saying, only God can tell you what is good. And then he goes on to tell him what is good, which is a claim to be what? God. He says, only one is good, but let me tell you the answer to your question about what good thing. It's an implicit and obvious claim to deity. And he says, okay, as God, I'm telling you this. You must do these things. He leaves one of the... The commandments, one of the second table of the law that deals with man's relationship with his fellow man out, which is the tenth, thou shalt not covet. And then he returns to it when the young man says, well, I've done all that. I've been very careful in those areas. And Jesus returns to the tenth and says, ah, there's one thing you're missing. And that is, by extension, the tenth commandment prohibits all greed. And you are a man who loves your money. And if you want to obtain eternal life, then what you must do is sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and I want you as my follower. Now, we're told that Jesus loved this young man. Not in this passage, but in another gospel, we're told that Jesus loved this young man. This is a good young man. He's a fine, upstanding citizen. Jesus' love for him that's mentioned in the other gospel is is a sign that there is something about this man that's commendable. He really, he really is someone that Jesus looks at and, and, and loves. And you say, Jesus loves everyone. No, it doesn't tell us that Jesus looks at everyone with love. Jesus loves everyone. But this was a special thing, and it's recorded in a special way in the other gospel, because this is a fine young man. He is a good young man. He has in a sense, all the knowledge that you can have that would lie at the root of what we think of as faith, and yet he, he lacks one thing. He has not given his money away. He relies on money. 
So we have a test of faith, and that test of faith is the same for you and me as it is for this rich young man. Do we trust our money or do we trust God? Do we trust our money? There's nothing Jesus speaks about more in the Gospels than money. And he warns and warns and warns. We saw it at the very beginning of his ministry when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, man's life does not consist of things. Trust God. Do not seek your own, but seek the kingdom of heaven, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus speaks about this over and over again and says, don't trust your money. Don't make your money your reliance. Don't look at your money as though that's the safety net of your life or the joy of your life or the power of your life. Now, this passage is often dealt with by preachers in a way that makes it easy for you. It makes it something that is sensible and doable. That's not my goal. And the reason it's not my goal is the disciples listen to what he says and they say, the rich young ruler looks at what he says and says, not sensible, not reasonable, not doable. So if you find this passage reasonable, doable, sensible, then you haven't listened to it. I just want it. Faith is not sensible. Faith is not sight. Faith does not say, yeah, okay. Faith does things that to the rest of the world look crazy. We have an example of faith in our study where many of us are engaging in this week in our small groups. Noah building the ark. It looks crazy. It's by faith that he does it. It's not by sight. Obedience to Jesus requires us understanding that Jesus is the light of the world and seeing that light and having it suffuse us and illuminate us so that we, in the darkness, obey when it doesn't make sense. When we're stumbling along, we obey, resting in the light that God has given us, that he's called us to do this kind of thing. So as we turn to this passage, I want to deal with a few things that have been said about this passage that you may have heard or that you, three basic ways that it's dealt with if it's not specific things. The, the first is that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. He's exaggerating here when he calls the rich young ruler to give it all away, when he says that it's harder for a a camel to go through, or for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that he really doesn't mean this, that, that this is kind of like those other things that Jesus says that you have to take with a little bit of a grain of salt, because surely he couldn't mean that, right? You know the passages I'm speaking about, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, all these things, and we put this in that category. But the plucking out of the eye and the cutting off of the hand are a mutilation of the body. And it's easy to see how those are not things that Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking metaphorically. But is there anything of metaphor in this? Do you think the man would have been done well to say, oh, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. That means I should be willing, kind of willing in general to, to give to the poor. 
would the man have left with disappointment? If that had been his meaning, if Jesus had meant that, and this poor young man thinks that Jesus really means give it all away, wouldn't Jesus have said, oh, wait a second, <laughs> this metaphor. I was speaking in general terms of general principle. You don't have to give it all away. Let me ask a question. If Jesus actually means for this young man to give it away, and if he means that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven, we're going to come to who's the wealthy man, all right? So don't excuse yourself on that count yet. If Jesus really means this, if it really is something he means, is it wise to dismiss it as metaphor to try and find a way around it? Would I be a faithful preacher if I said to you, ah, don't worry about this? If, if you were told that the fence in front of you is an electric fence, would you say, oh, it's metaphor, and just touch it? No, even if you didn't see the little, the little insulators along the fence post, you'd probably go, hey, I'm going to stand back. Jesus has said, if you want to enter heaven, obey this. What is the danger? The danger is of being damned. Shouldn't we pay attention to this passage? Isn't this something we should listen to? If we're going to be careful around an electric fence, shouldn't we be careful around hell? Jesus is not a bad communicator. He is not dense. He does not tease by speaking more boldly and exaggeratedly than he really should. He knows what he's saying. He is the word of God. He is not something else. When he says what he says here, he knows how it's going to be received. He's not surprised by how he's heard, nor is he running after this rich young ruler and saying, ah, no, 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 you didn't get it. So, Jesus means this. There's no way around it. He lets the young man go. The disciples take him as meaning it. No one in this crowd thinks he doesn't mean it. Second, this, uh, this passage is often dismissed as being a passage which, which really isn't as hard as it sounds. Um, some of you grew up in the era that I did when there was sermon after sermon preached on this passage which talked about the camel going through the eye of a needle. And I've spoken about this before, but I remember sermons in my childhood that said there was a gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the needle gate because it was so low that a camel couldn't run right through it. It was made to fend off attack, to keep a, a tall, standing, armed camel from running through. So they had to get down on their knees to go through the needle gate. It was, called, it was so short and small, called the needle gate. And, and that's what Jesus is speaking about. You have to get on your knees to go through it. Now, it's balderdash. There is no such gate. It's entirely made up of whole cloth. Never was, never will be, never, never in the time of Christ there was no needle gate. There was nothing that allowed a camel to go through on its knees. But why did that story get made up? Well, the story got made up because people want to believe that Jesus doesn't really mean what he says. You understand? It's in our hearts to want to diminish this. To say, ah, nah. 
And I want to speak about this and, and say something about these, these disciples. Because Jesus has said this to the young man. And the young man is the one who, who walks away. But it's interesting to note that in the passage, the disciples are alarmed. They're astonished. And they say, who then can be saved? What does this mean? Well, they understand Jesus to be speaking in a broader way than you would want. In fact, Peter then, after Jesus responds to the question of who can be saved, by saying, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, Peter said to him, okay, look, behold, behold, okay, look, Jesus. This is a really serious speech. He's saying, look, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Peter is clearly understanding this passage to speak about himself. He's saying, okay. Peter is a middle-class business owner. He has boats. He has a fishing business. He works at it. His father worked at it. His brother works at it. He's like you. He is like you. Calvin says of this passage, and I think this is one of those areas where, where I can't agree with Calvin. He says, it's scarcely possible for those who have a great abundance to avoid being intoxicated by it. That if you have a great abundance, you can be intoxicated. So they, he goes on, so they who are exceedingly rich are held by Satan bound, as it were, in chains, that they may not raise their thoughts to heaven. He says, it's for those who have a great abundance and are exceedingly rich. Peter was not exceedingly rich. Peter understands this to be told as something that he must do. And he's saying, okay, we've done it. The problem with our approach to this passage is that we always want to look just a level ahead of us on the ladder and say, they're in danger, but I'm not. So no one's actually in danger because of their reliance on money. Because the people ahead of us one step are saying, it's those people and it's those people. And finally we get to Elon Musk and he can't say it about anyone, can he? So maybe Elon Musk is in trouble, but you're not, right? (laughs) I'm being sarcastic. No, you're in danger. I say this about myself as well. I'm in danger. Our desire for money, our reliance on money, our looking at our bank accounts and our stock portfolios, our thinking about money, are looking at the values of our houses, are checking out on Trulia and Zillow what our house is worth today versus when we bought it is exactly the kind of thing Jesus is speaking about here and saying it is death, eternal death. So where do I go from here? What do I say? You realize the problem of preaching a passage like this is that we all feel the weight of it and we say, what should I do? I feel it more than you do, I think. 
Some years ago, I was going, I was at the Christian bookstore and I was looking at a magazine there and it had a, a photo shoot of a, a young Christian artist at the time, pretty woman. And uh, these were incredibly provocative photos. And I thought, what is this young mother, this young Christian woman doing? Having these pictures of herself, I mean, really provocative, put into a Christian music magazine. Couldn't understand it. I thought, she really doesn't want all the guys who are going to look at this and lust after this. She doesn't want them. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? She, you know, she had an apparently happy marriage, children. I'm saying, what does she want? What is she doing this for? And I realized <laughs> she doesn't want the guys. She wants their money, right? She wants their money. She wants their money. Everyone thinks that money can get you what you want. Give me money and I'll have women. Give me money and I'll have power. Give me money. So we've been talking in our Sunday school classes the last two weeks about the church and how it used to and still does sells the grace of God. Indulgences. A writ of paper that says your sins are remitted. That the punishment is taken away. Of course, the reformers used to say, if it's in your power to do this, why on earth are you selling it? Just give it to people. If you have the power, why are you selling it? Right? Because we love money. Because the church loves money because God's people, his pastors, his elders, because you love money. You can't conceive of a life that isn't bound to this earth by money. Nor can I. Money can get us what we want. Money can get us immortality. One of the things I was struck by this past year in the sad news of the divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates is that friends of theirs said that one of the reasons they had stayed together as long as they did was that through the Gates Foundation, they had been hoping very strongly to obtain the Nobel Peace Prize. And so they stayed together for some years in the hope of gaining the Nobel Peace Prize. Money can get you the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel is pretty close to immortality for an atheist. It doesn't get better than the Nobel Peace Prize, does it? I mean, you're certifiably a good person right there with Mother Teresa if you get the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Money, money. So, what should we do? Well, I'm speaking to you as the son of a guy who did not love money. And it was reflected in several ways in his life. My father's distaste for money. He didn't spend money on our house. He gave a lot of money away. He wasn't wealthy, but he gave, the year I kept his finances for him, he was giving over 20, 25% of his salary away. 
He didn't hang out with people who love money. Now, I'm not sure if that's the chicken or the egg. I kind of suspect that the people he loved didn't love money. Am I making sense? Um, there were some people who had a lot of money who were his friends, but they were very well known as people who gave away almost everything they got. Well known in the Christian world. My father's life was spent kind of avoiding money, and it really was a remarkable thing that he was able to leave my mother comfortable, not wealthy, but comfortable until her death. Because my dad worked until he was about 50 for InterVarsity and made no money, made none. So, learning from the Bible, learning from my father, learning from some examples I've seen here. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, I have three things to tell you. And I'm not telling you these things because this church needs your money. This church doesn't need your, your dirty money. You understand what I'm saying? Your money's dirty. You give it because you need it cleaned, not because we need it. Now, I will ask you for money as your pastor. And as I go towards retirement, I want to get our debt paid off. And so I'm going to challenge some of you to give in a big way towards this. But believe me, I don't want your money, and I don't care about your money. Nor does Jesus care. He cares about your faith. Whether you recognize him as God and live for him and are set free from the love of money and the love of this world. So three things. First, if you are not tithing, giving 10% of everything you get, and that doesn't matter if you're the king of the world or if you're the pauper under the throne, if you're not tithing, you don't know God. You don't. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. But that's in question. What is clear is you don't know the generosity of God. You just don't. God is generous. Jesus says it here. Give to God and he'll pour back into your life. In fact, it says at the end here, of this, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Well, you might think that this means many times as much in eternity, but Luke and Mark make it very clear that Jesus said many times as much in this life. So it's not just in eternity. So if you are not giving 10%, which God's word says to give, which is the base, it's not the giving to the poor, it's not these other things. If you're not giving 10%, then you don't know the glory of God and you're not enamored of heaven, all right? I, you may say, that's not true, David. Well, then I say to you, Jesus, what he says here is not true. In fact, in Luke, Jesus says, unless you give it all away, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We see in the book of Acts, Barnabas, son of encouragement, giving a field, selling a field, giving the money to the poor in the church. It appears that he had other wealth as well. I don't know how to deal with this. All I know is that the command is to give. I constantly in myself say, should we give it all? I want to. That brings me to my second point. Tithe, help the poor. There are poor in this congregation. You look around and you say, who can I give to? 
There are people in this church who make just above minimum wage and are raising families on it. You can give to them. God loves the poor. God loves those who don't have money. God loves those who don't love the things. Give your money to the poor. Beginning here. Find the people who don't have money. And you don't have to look hard. If you can't see them, talk to me and I'll point them out to you. Find them and give. Give to the poor. God is a champion for the poor. Jesus came to the poor. He loves the poor. So tithe, give to the poor. Stop saying, oh, I've needed or I don't know who the poor are. They're around you. They're right around you. Third, if you aren't giving big amounts, risky amounts of money away, if you aren't giving away so much that people would say you're crazy, then you're not, you're not understanding the goodness of God and the challenge of this, of this passage. Give big amounts, give risky amounts to God. Give money away. Yeah, I know, I've known several men, one in particular, my sister-in-law's father, who, who made surprising amounts of money from the company he started. Started a publishing company and it became one of the biggest publishing companies in the United States, still is today. And he gave all the profits away. Hundreds of millions of dollars and kept maybe 10 million for his children and he had 10 children. So he didn't keep loads of money for his family. He gave and gave and gave. You know what the funny thing was? As he gave his money away, the company grew more and more profitable. It kept making more money. This is my experience. A few years ago, we were challenged to give to the building program of this church. We did. We gave our inheritance, most of it, that I'd received from an aunt and some from my mother. We lived on my mother's because our salary went down. Our salary went down about 20% for about four or five years. It was a hard time, and we realized we were not, we were not, we were losing money. We just, every year, expenses were bigger than the income, but it was for God. We came through, and I, I can't tell you how, somehow we came through that period with more money than my, than my dad had at the end of his life as a president of a publishing company. God is faithful. God is true. Give your money away and God pours back into your life. He gives and gives and gives and if you keep it, well then God doesn't give and you'd better trust on that because that's all you have. But if you give it away, you have the glorious love of God superintending your life, watching over your finances, caring for you. Now which do you want? Do you want what you can do, or do you want what God can do? Look, my experience as a pastor is that those who love their money do not love God's people and do not love his church and end up in the world. It's just true. One of the things I've been pleased about over the years is that God has not given our church one person in our 20 years of existence who could fund everything. I think it's a gift of God that we've had to rely on him and that we haven't had someone that we could rely on. It's goodness of God. 
We're not a church of wealthy people, and I hope we never are. God loves the poor. I wish we had more poor people in our church. Well, let me say, if you give to God, you'll never want. Jesus is speaking seriously here. How... How seriously he's speaking is reflected in the statements of the disciples who say, then who can be saved? Jesus says, it's impossible. I know I'm calling you to do what's impossible for man. Only by faith, only by knowing the light of Jesus in your life can you live this way. Only by the power of God can you be saved. But... I was very clear. You can't have God and all your wealth. You can't. It's just true. Give to God and you will have treasure here and in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. and Father, I know that it, it is in me to to count my, my money, to count my wealth, to trust in these things rather than you. Father, you must make me able. You must make us able. You must convict us and convince us of your goodness. Convict us of our sinful reliance on money. Convince us that if we give it up, you will be faithful and you will shower us with blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.